This is ESG Decoded, the podcast powered by Global Affairs Associates to provide relevant, actionable updates related to business innovation and sustainability. Join Caitlin Allen and Amanda Shea of Global Affairs Associates for thoughtful, nuanced conversations with industry leaders that explore the complexities, the risks, and the opportunities connected to all things ESG. And I'm Yvonne Harris, a consultant and a co-host, and I will be collaborating with Caitlin and Amanda for the discussions that we will present on this podcast. Put simply, ESG is everything that is not on your balance sheet. This leaves room for misunderstanding, oversimplification, and the tendency towards one-size-fits-all perspectives. None of that will happen on this podcast. Enjoy this episode. Good afternoon. This is Caitlin Allen with Global Affairs Associates. We're here today to talk to Dr. Jamila Yamani, who is uh, an incredible scientist and uh, investment advisor currently with Climate Impact Capital. Um, And she's also a board member of the Global Affairs Associates Advisory Board. Uh, We wanted to get uh, together today to talk a little bit about her work, her background, and hear some of her advice for um, working parents, as well as uh, the next generation of leaders. Um, So thank you so much for being here, Jamila. We're really excited to talk to you today. Thanks so much for having me, Caitlin. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Jamila, you're a PhD scientist and chemical engineer. How did you get into the investment space as a scientist? Uh, So I spent, I guess, almost 10 years in academics between, you know, all of the the post-high school education that I've done, uh, the last five of which was uh, lab bench science. And I think at the end of that, um, one, I was definitely a little burnt out from lab bench science, but also um, I found that we were doing a ton of research, a ton of good work by some of the smartest folks, you know, in the country and in the world, um, and publishing work that was sitting on a shelf, seemingly. And I really, I I felt at that time, and, you know, I think it's still a a strong motivation of what I do today, that there has to be an avenue for novel science to make it out of um, the university, out of the laboratory, and into um, the commercial space. And a lot of what I have spent the years since completing my doctorate have been um, along that transition, particularly related to sustainability challenges, um, because that's, that's you know, my, my space and my interests. Um, but I would say that's largely true kind of across technology sectors. Um, we see a ton of good science, you know, stuck. And I think that you know, the investment community has the ability to propel technology forward. And I think largely need to work together. I think there's kind of a a negative connotation for finance and investment, the private sector, maybe in general in academics and in the finance space, um, kind of, you know, looking at at nascent science as essentially a science project, which, you know, obviously it is in many capacities, but I think there's a really a synergy between the two that I'm looking to you know, navigate and, and figure out. That's so awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's 
definitely been a divide between a lot of the sectors. And that was also true from the nonprofit sector, government, business, finance, and everyone sort of just distrusting the intentions or <laughs> the other. Absolutely. Um, and we've, we've got to get past that because we need everybody. Uh, Absolutely. We tend yeah. to push people into different corners and that's not quite how we're going to overcome these challenges. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. When we first met Jamila for the first time in, um, at Croissant Brioche, shout out to one of the best uh, classic Houston establishments in Rice Village. <laughs> um, we talked a lot about waste and discovered that we are both waste nerds meaning we like to talk about waste. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about your doctoral work and why you chose to focus on that topic. Sure, absolutely. So my um, dissertation was primarily focused on sustainable wastewater treatment and urban infrastructure. Um, and the materials that I was working with were waste products, um, byproducts of the shellfish industry, a material called chitosan, which I know my scientist friends out there will, will know and be very familiar with. Um, and it was kind of my first foray into this um, waste upcycling space. Um, and, you know, a lot of the work that happened both in my research and I think, you know, in a lot of my colleagues' research in the Center for Green Chemistry and Green Engineering at Yale, where, you know, I, I studied, um, was around solving sustainability challenges without creating new sustainability challenges. So, for mm -hmm. example, my work was focused on um, wastewater remediation, for, in particular acid mine drainage, which, you know, is, is particularly um, relevant to parts of our country, um, you know, uh, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, mm -hmm. that, that side where, you know, we see a lot of mining happening and, and often infiltration into um, not just, you know, public waterways, but also, uh, you know, the, the, the water table. Mm -hmm. And we can't try to solve that problem and create a new problem. Mm -hmm. And, we, you know, we don't often think of, of all of the pieces in, in a life cycle way, but putting energy into a removal technique is fantastic. But you are creating another, you know, pathway for emissions, another pathway for waste. And so it's really about trying to solve multiple challenges at the same time or, you know, not sacrificing one sector for another. And the work that I did there, I think, you know, was particularly helpful when I moved into the investment space. My first role was um, in private equity. And a lot of work we did there was around waste valorization. Um, whether we're talking about municipal waste or, um, you know, um, industrial waste. I mean, and I think now, you know, where the sector has gone, most of the specialized waste sectors are looking for avenues to, you know, um, kind of close the loop, whether you're talking about construction or plastics or metals or, you know, whatever it may be. I'd say probably municipal waste is one of the challenges. You know, recycling is not a perfect system. I think we have all recognized that. It's not so simple as, you know, putting all of your garbage in the recycling bin and magically it gets separated. <laughs> you know, the world doesn't work like that. Um, but I think those are the challenges that now we are addressing. And, you know, obviously a lot of the interest and work around plastics these days, people are so much more aware 
of what a plastic bag means, what a plastic straw means, what single-use plastics are and implications for um, our society and the planet as a whole is so much more pronounced now than it was, you know, I'd say even five years ago. No, it's, it's so interesting. And I mean, I think, I think those concepts too, I've seen, um, we've seen this evolution from corporate responsibility, corporate social responsibility to sustainability, um, and now to ESG, environmental social governance, and that evolution in terminology. And I think you touched on, um, you touched on the circular economy, which I, I do think is kind of, it, that's the next level, right? That's the next level of all of this is actually closed loop systems. That point so, about closed systems, I think kind of gets back to our earlier point where it's not so simple as stuffing people into different corners, right? A circular economy cannot happen, me and my home alone. It's, it's yes. just not a practical or feasible option. But, you know, once those stakeholders come together at the table, you know, we'd be surprised to see what type of challenges we can solve with just a little bit of collaboration. Absolutely. Speaking of collaboration, you're currently with Climate Impact Capital um, out of Houston. Um, Tell us a little bit about about the group uh, today and what you're up to. And then I'd like to ask you about some common misconceptions about climate impact investing. What do you think are the top things that that people don't understand about what you do? Sure, absolutely. So um, Climate Impact Capital is a VC firm um, that was started by Alex Rosenfelder, Managing Director. He was formerly president of Shell Tech Ventures LLC based here in the U.S. And um, saw a gap in the innovation pipeline that CIC really seeks to fill. Um, We use innovation and, you know, I'll use that as a Um, a synonym, I guess, for VC as a platform to advance um, strategies around kind of these major challenges of our time, decarbonization, climate change readiness, um, the energy transition. And we work with, um, you know, corporate partners on decarbonization strategies to develop, you know, venture portfolios on these topics. And, you know, I think your point about misconceptions is is so true, not only, I think, in the finance space, but also when we look towards the corporate space. Venture capital doesn't, obviously, definitely connotes a sense of technical risk associated with early stage technology. But I would say largely the technologies that we need to solve these major challenges are not limited by availability of technology. it's more around the business model. It's more mm. around um, adoption, um, integration of those technologies into corporations, into you know municipalities, into our everyday lives. And uh, I think now folks are coming around, whether from um, the finance space or from the corporate space, and recognizing that venture can really serve to propel forward those strategies and, you know, move corporations towards their goals in a much more rapid and accelerated way. So it's interesting. You say one of, one of the things that we hear a lot is that um, we don't have all of the technology today to get us to net zero, that there's still a gap there. But do you mean then, help me understand that you actually see the technology as all already there? Yeah, so I don't think that it's really about 
all the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a big part of where I came from in my research was about transitional technologies and um, technologies that already exist in one sector, but just have to be applied into a new sector. So, you know, obviously all the solutions don't already exist. And I think there's a distinction there between technology and solutions. Mm. And I say, largely we have made a lot of progress in the technology space. Um, But I think it's a little bit of a cop-out and, you know, to corporations to say the technology is not there yet. And I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be ostracized by all of our um, potential future clients. So, um, you know, (laughs) more of the idea that that technology probably already exists in another vertical. It's just a matter of bringing that over from that vertical into our, your vertical or our target vertical to make, you know, a solution that's relevant. And uh, I'd say that, you know, that, that transformation of technology from one vertical to another is a large part of how we're going to see our, ourselves get to, you know, net zero. Um, certainly, you know, I, I'm not saying all the solutions are there and it's just a matter of putting them together, but I'd say we're, we're a large part of the way there. I mean, Rocky Mountain Institute last year uh, came out well, last year, earlier this year. I don't know. COVID, I don't know what year. I have no idea what year it was, but put out um, a study that indicated it's no longer financially viable to create a new natural gas combined cycle plant. And solar and storage has now, you know, that, that, that we're already past that point. Um, EV and ICE parity is coming up. So these are just a couple of, you know, small spaces where you can see these changes are already rapidly accelerating. And um, Jamila, sorry to jump in, but can you spell out EV and IC for folks that aren't familiar? Sure. EV, um, electric vehicles, and ICE, internal combustion engines. So the traditional kind of gas vehicle that we drive Mm -hmm. and EVs. I remember several years ago when the Prius came out, I don't know how many years ago that was now, but it was, it was still a novelty. Um, you know, it wasn't as expensive, but the value proposition wasn't completely there, especially for most of our country who is driven by, you know, the economic viability of a certain choice. We don't all have the luxury of making the most environmentally responsible choice. However, as we start seeing price parity between some of these, um, you know, sustainable solutions and some of the more conventional traditional technologies, I think that shift is, is actively happening. Um, Mm -hmm. So, and I say, you know, I know, Caitlin, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, no, but go I, ahead. that kind of gets to your other question about, um, you know, what are the gateway technologies? I think EV and ICE parity is definitely one of them. I think we, we already surpassed or perhaps are passing through the next one, which is natural gas power versus solar plus storage. That's probably another huge one. And I'm just talking about this particular space because currently CIC's you know, focus is in um, the oil and gas and power utility space. But these type of price parity options also exist in um, bio-based versus petroleum-based materials, you know, plastics, um, uh, pharmaceuticals, personal care products. There's a, there's a number of them. Um, and I say now, you know, a, a big part of what we're going to see getting to the next step is consumers like us voting with our dollars. And that's a large, large part of why corporations do what they do, right? They do it to sell it to people like us. 
So if we demand to see those opportunities and options on the table um, at a price that's at least comparable, I think we'll really see that change move forward. That's so interesting that the the whole question about parity too, and that's, that's, it, it sounds to me that that's one of the key market triggers for, for these sorts of changes over time. Um, <clears throat> and I, I think very much gets to a lot of the work that um, you guys do at GAA around um, ESG and, and this idea that ESG doesn't necessarily mean taking on something new, doesn't mean taking on additional risk. It's actually about de-risking. And Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, from not, not from just an environmental, but from a social perspective also. And, you know, parity just pushes us closer and, and makes that argument um, that much more understandable, I think, from obviously a corporate bottom line. Yeah. Because we all have stakeholders and shareholders to uh, answer to, right? Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's one of the big misconceptions that you hear about oh, this is just another cost and it doesn't mean anything, but it, you're, it's actually a de risking process. Um, and it completely needs to be, um, you know, aligned with the business strategy. Absolutely. Um, and that's been our, you know, that's definitely been our philosophy at Global Affairs Associates for a long time has been making these strategies that actually align with the business goals and objectives um, and using those, you know, these as value levers, like whatever E, S, or G issued is, how is that a lever to get more value out of um, whatever you're already doing or say potentially something new that you're going to take on? But no, thank you for that. That's a really... Um, it's very true. And I think it's, it's something that, um, is still a big misconception in a lot of circles. <laughs> no, I absolutely. Um, agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think CAC comes at it more from the technology strategy perspective, but mm-hmm. very similar in that, um, it's about de-risking the overall business. And currently we see, you know, climate change readiness or decarbonization, the energy transition as, challenges that are on the horizon but it's it's really not that it's really about addressing resource scarcity it's about addressing the advent of natural threats it's about Mm -hmm. addressing um stability in the supply chain those are all very much connected and huge risks to the business that right business strategies around es and g and um technology strategies like vc that can help mitigate Mm -hmm. absolutely Beautifully said, Shamila. (laughs) Um, I'm going to switch over to some personal topics just to get to know you a little bit more. On top of being a professional and a board member uh, of Global Affairs Associates, you're the mother of three children. Could you share some of your own tips and perspectives on being a working parent? I don't think there's any rule book and there's no magic answer. Uh, you know, I think it's a challenge and perhaps the pandemic has kind of hopefully opened the eyes to the rest of the world, you know, the challenges of working parents. And, you know, I, I can speak as a working mom, you know, like you, there are, are, are definitely challenges associated with it. I have a fantastic support system and I, I you know, absolutely leverage that. And, but I, I think in general, the perspective that, um, you know, Work-life balance is not optional anymore. 
Um, I think the world is not the same as it was when we grew up. And perhaps, um, you know, that that balance was okay back, you know, I don't know, 25 years ago when I was growing up. But now I feel like if I burn out, I'm no use to them at all. Yeah. And I, yeah, right. And a work-life balance is, I think, something that we think is a, and, you know, and I, I say this as somebody that has it, uh, you know, understandably the luxury of work-life balance, but it's no yeah. longer just a privilege, right? It really should be, an, it's a need. Yes, yes. And I, I think we need to work towards that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's interesting because so many, like you said, I think the pandemic has helped a lot of people that um, maybe didn't feel or see everything that working parents do um, has made that a lot more clear. <laughs> um, but to your point and you know it, it is a privilege to have work-life balance but it should not be I agree and I do feel balanced um compared to I think anyone that has to go into an office or work 10 20 hour days or you know because so I, I not 20 maybe <laughs> some people do <laughs> getting you're getting emails at two in the morning and you're like how do you do that you just don't sleep but you're like you said you we have to take care of ourselves. And um, I love the idea of making that not a privilege. Like that has to be number one. Absolutely. And, and I, I shout out to my firm because I've, you know, I, I really feel like we do important work, um, still recognizing that we all have personal lives that we have to balance and manage. And, um, yeah. you know, my firm, my managing director has been, you know, incredible in recognizing that for myself and my team members. And I think recognizes that it makes me better at my job if I can, you know, have some kind of balance between, you know, my family life and my work life. And um, mm -hmm. I hope we can get to a point, perhaps the pandemic will be the tipping point um, that will no longer have to make that a privilege for, you know, you know, we are lucky, you know, I think we, we are, are fortunate, yeah. but um, I, I know other, you know, working parents that kind of don't have that luxury yet. Mm -hmm. and I, I hope that mm -hmm. it comes to, you know, the rest of the community soon. Absolutely. Yeah, no, they, that's, that's great. But I think the key takeaway there is you have to prioritize you. Yes, absolutely. And oh, whatever I that means. What? I heard one other, I, I read it somewhere. It was so fantastic and I, I can't take credit for it. Okay, it go for it someone else. <laughs> um, but it was that at any given point, you know, working parents are juggling 10 or 15 different balls. And yeah. it's just about recognizing which one of those are glass balls and which one of those are plastic balls. Which is okay to drop. And I'm not saying that it's always going to be um, a work ball that you drop for your family, right? Like my kid might have to read a book report, but I've got a huge work project that day. You know, that's the ball I need to catch. The kid's grade is not going to be the end of the world, right? Oh my God, that's exactly what I say about online kindergarten or somebody's right. stress. I'm okay. like, so it's just about be fine. My balls are more important right now right. than my class ball. Right. Yes. And that was a, yeah. when I read that, I said, you know, that's so true. It's not, yeah. it's not always about putting my work first or always about putting all of my children's sometimes very trivial needs. First, yeah. 
It's yeah. about trying to figure out which ones are the priority for right now and making sure we solve those. And the rest of our life will be okay if we miss some of those goals. Not a huge deal. Oh, God. I love that, Jamila. Yes. Which, but I can't get credit for it. It, it was belonged to somebody else. I read it. I'm sure I read it. If we it. find the reference, we'll tag it on the blog. But <laughs> it was so true. It was so true. Oh, I love that. It is, it is because, and some days something that's the glass ball that day that you have to take extreme care of, like maybe in a week won't be, won't be. The gla- it'll, it'll morph into the, the tennis ball. That's exactly right. No, that's so true. And I think that the other thing you mentioned too, about now, like right now, what is party now? And I think that's one thing that I've, I've, you know, you're forced to, you don't have a choice, but you have to do one thing at a time, one day at a time. Like what can I get done today? Um, so yeah, no, I, I love that. Thank you for sharing. Okay. And then last personal question, um, what would be your advice to yourself at the very beginning of your career? Say age 20, to maybe undergrad, finishing undergrad, what would be your advice to your, uh, to yourself looking back? I, I think, you know, I, I didn't always, I, I, I now feel confident in who I am and my voice, but I don't think that's always true. And I think the advice to myself and perhaps to all of the, you know, the folks out there that are starting out on their career, especially in the sustainability space is, you know, your independent voice means something. It has a perspective that nobody else has. And if you don't speak up, you will never get to contribute your voice to whatever the topic at hand is. And I know I know many times I bit my tongue thinking, oh, that's just a everybody already knows that. You know, that's understood. But that's not always true. Don't sell yourself short. And the worst thing that will happen is somebody will challenge you and you know you will stand corrected and it's okay to stand corrected. I think it's a, oh, a point of amen. growth. Amen. <laughs> it's, okay. it's okay to stand you know, corrected. You know, I, perhaps somebody will challenge me on one of the comments that I made on this podcast and, and, you know, and I will stand corrected, but I, I think that recognizing that your voice, your independent, unique voice brings something to the table is something that, we don't learn, I think, until we think we earned that choice or that op, uh, that privilege of speaking up. Um, but that usually happens way too late. And I feel like a lot of the new novel ideas come from people who are starting out their careers, have a very fresh perspective, aren't mm-hmm. jaded yet by, you know, the the routine of what they see every single day. And yeah. especially when it comes to sustainability challenges, those are the type of perspectives we need. When you're coming from a different sector, if you're, you know, you're changing sectors, if you're moving from academics to finance or moving from the private sector into academia, whatever that transition may be, we have to be able to value those um, voices that came either new or from a different space and speak up. That's my biggest thing. And my second thing for all the younger people out there is reach out to anyone and everyone on LinkedIn. That is how I met Caitlin. Oh, yeah. That is how I met my current managing director. I mean, it works. I would say by and large, 95% of the people on LinkedIn are there because they want to connect. Mm -hmm. They want to either, you know, pay it forward or grow their network, whatever the case may be. So you have nothing to lose by sending a message. Somebody will not respond. That's the only thing that can happen. 
Absolutely. Oh, I love that. Shamila, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. I mean, really, I think there's uh, so, so much of the voice, you know, speaking up, saying something that especially if it's controversial, you know, uh, I spent a long time tiptoeing around the word climate because it still wasn't okay to say that in Houston. And, um, you know, I, I do look back sometimes and think, oh, darn, that was an opportunity to have a conversation with someone. Now, I don't do that anymore. Obviously, I talk to people all the time. About it. Um, but there was definitely a time when, like you said, I thought I didn't know enough or I didn't whatever, um, you know, didn't feel comfortable having put a potentially uncomfortable conversation and having those um, respectfully and um, like you said, it's a, with the idea that's okay to stand corrected, you know, that, 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 that is civil discourse and that's how we get to solutions. Absolutely. Um, and very so thank you. Considering the election <laughs> around the corner. That's right. If we could only do that in every aspect that's of our right. lives, right? Stop sensationalizing, stop pushing people into, you know, different extremes. In boxes, in, yeah. In boxes, you know, we yeah. all have something to share. And, you know, Caitlin, like you said, sometimes we felt like we didn't know enough. Mm-hmm. And perhaps, you know, we are the least experienced or the least educated in the room. It's entirely possible, but that does not mean that your perspective doesn't have something that the other person didn't think about. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll force them to think a different way and, and come up with a different solution. And so, you know, don't sell yourself short, I think is the, the key for, for all of those yeah. future folks coming up. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Um, well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you again for your service on the Global Affairs Associates Advisory Board. We have grown leaps and bounds this year in large part due to Um, due to our board. And so we're really grateful for you um, and all the time and insight you've shared. And till next time, (laughs) sign off. Thank you so much. Give everyone at Climate Impact Capital a high five for me or an elbow five. (laughs) We are still not doing high fives. Elbow five, right? Thank you for listening to ESG Decoded. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you consume yours and follow ESG Decoded and Global Affairs Associates across social media platforms. Until our next episode, take what you learned today to drive long-term value for your organization by doing good for people and the planet.